When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Flower Path, and welcome Justin Showalter. How you doing? All right. Well, it's good to have you here because with a co-host, we can now cover some of these saint stories. What I was doing in the past is I was having some helpers rewrite these stories, and it's a very time-consuming process, and they were volunteers. It was no one I was able to pay. I was writing some. They were writing most of them. It's just a very time-consuming thing, and I felt bad throwing all these stories at them. But with two people, we can actually discuss the stories. Before we get to the news stories and before we get to this episode, I want to thank the Flower Path patrons. Thank you so much. If you'd like to support the Flower Path, you can become a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash thefloweredpath. All patrons get commercial-free versions of the show, while Rose and Orchid Tier patrons get exclusive episodes other bonus content, and shout-outs on the show. Orchid tier patrons get monthly merch mailings as well. If this sounds good to you, check out the options at patreon.com slash thefloweredpath or go to thefloweredpath.com and click the support button there. There's a link to Patreon there, but also a PayPal button if you want to make a one-time donation. And I have some shout-outs. I'd like to thank Delaney Bowers and James Burke for becoming patrons. Thank you so much. That's a huge help. Thank you. So on this show, we're going to be talking about St. Therese of Lisieux. I'm going to be talking with Mary Beth Bracey from Sophia Institute Press. We're going to be discussing two books about St. Therese. I Would Like to Travel the World and I Believe in Love. So you can look forward to that in the second part of the show. But first, we have some news to discuss, Justin.
Let's start with a new story from December 18th about the blood of St. Januarius. It miraculously liquefied again in Naples. The Archdiocese of Naples, Italy, announced that the miracle of the liquefaction of the blood of St. Januarius was repeated Saturday at the end of Mass honoring him as the patron saint of the city. The Italian Archdiocese reported on Facebook that at 10.35 a.m., on December 16th, the announcement of the liquefaction of the blood of St. Januarius was made at the end of the Eucharist, celebrated in the Royal Chapel of the Treasure of St. Januarius in the Naples Cathedral. The miracle of liquefaction traditionally occurs three times a year in commemoration of the transfer of his remains to Naples, the Saturday before the first Sunday in May, on his liturgical feast, September 19th, and on the anniversary of the eruption of nearby Mount Vesuvius in 1631, when his intercession was invoked and the city was spared from the effects of the eruption, December 16th. However, on November 23rd, the miracle also reportedly occurred after ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew held the relic on a visit to the Naples Cathedral. The event was confirmed in an email to the National Catholic Register, CNA's sister partner, from the General Vicar of the Orthodox Diocese of Italy, Father Viserian Vaqueros, and that is from the Catholic News Agency from December 18th, 2023. You're the one who pointed me to that article. Yes. It was just something that came up, and it's the neat miracle. It's something that you hear about often, and I recall you would see news media about it every now and then, and it's a cool thing. Oh, it's super cool. There's a picture at the website on Catholic News Agency, CNA, where they're holding up the reliquy. I didn't know it was that big. I thought it was like a tiny little vial of blood. It's quite a big, it's almost like the size of a monstrance. Yeah. You can see the liquefied blood. It's almost, it's like half the size of the guy's head. Yeah. Yeah. And it looks like you can see like kind of the blood is like in the center there, kind of moving around a bit. That's what it looks like, yeah. That's cool. (laughs) Yeah, this is on one of my places I'll probably never get to, but I'm going to put it on the list of places I'd absolutely like to see. Definitely would like to see that. That's been in there since, let's see, do they give the date that that's been in there from? Well, it's been at least since the 1600s because they said... Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, and I know that when I was writing my article about this instance, and doing some research on it, they mentioned that Pope Francis made a visit to this relic, and it liquefied when he picked up the reliquary and such. That's amazing. That's just stunning. How does that happen? You know, other than a weird miracle, this it reminds me of like the incorruptible saints. You know, it's just how does that happen? Yeah. On the cover of the book, The Incorruptibles, which is about these saints who have, you know, incorruptible, for those who don't know what that is, their bodies after death do not decay or rot in the same way that other bodies do. Some are perfectly preserved. Others are sort of mostly preserved or more preserved than would be expected. I guess there's different levels of of incorruptibility. But on the cover of that book is a picture of St. Bernadette, who died in the 1800s. I mean, she looks like she's asleep. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's such a stunning thing, and there's—I don't know how to explain this stuff other than you just say miracle, you know. Saint Jacinta is 
one that I became aware of through your Fatima program with Brother Richard. He mentioned that and that there was a photo of it. And I just had no idea that she was an incorruptible tomb. And sure enough, you can see pictures of her in the casket, like when they're unearthing the body. Yeah, I think she was exhumed in the 50s. So she would have died in what, 1918 or so? Yeah, her and Francisco, it was like a year after Fatima. Yeah, yeah, they exhumed her in the 1950s, and yeah, she was incorrupt as well. And Gemma Galgani, she had an incorrupt heart when she was exhumed. Yeah, I'm trying to remember, it's been a while since we did the episode. They said her heart was as fresh as someone who had, you know, had just been alive, right? Yeah. But I believe they said, like, her body didn't have any... Stench and the flowers that they buried with her hadn't decayed either. Yeah, yeah, she was another one. So the next story I wanted to cover is about St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, also known as Mother Seton, who was the first U.S.-born saint. This article comes from the National Catholic Register. December 12th, 2023. A few days before the feast of Guadalupe when this was written. Yes. This article is about the first image of Our Lady of Guadalupe in the United States was likely owned by Mother Seton. St. Elizabeth Ann Seton is known for many firsts. She's the first homegrown American saint. She started the first congregation of women religious founded in the United States. And as almost every U.S. Catholic knows, she was a pioneer in Catholic education. Now one more first can be added to the list. She was likely the first person to display an image of Our Lady of Guadalupe in the U.S. In the newly opened museum at the National Shrine of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton in Emmitsburg, Maryland, hangs an 18th century painting owned by Mother Seton's religious community of Our Lady of Guadalupe, one of the world's most recognizable, venerated, and reproduced images of the Blessed Mother. Emmitsburg is an amazing place. But I've actually never been to the St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Shrine. Hey, you're close by. I know. It's, it's not that far away. But whenever I go there, I always go to, they have the Grotto of Lourdes. And I always end up going there. And I spend so much time there. Walk, it's so beautiful. They just have these amazing grounds and chapels. And sometimes they have mass there. And, you know, I'm so involved in everything there that I have never actually taken the time to visit the Shrine of Elizabeth Ann Seton. So I have to go. That's on the list of things that I can accomplish and will be accomplished. Continuing with the article, they said more than 20 million pilgrims annually visit the Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico City to gaze in awe at the miraculous Marian depiction displayed on St. Juan Diego's Tilma. Far fewer people will trek to the Seton Shrine in Emmitsburg, but for those who know and love Mother Seton, the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe that she has owned is evidence of her dynamic faith that created new paths of evangelization in the United States. New research from the Shrine and University of Notre Dame professor Tim Matuvina, who specializes in U.S. Catholic and U.S. Latino theology and religion, shows that the saint's painting is the first known image of Our Lady of Guadalupe to be publicly venerated in the United States. The discovery sheds new light on the spread of the devotion to the 16th century Marian apparition in the U.S. and insights into Mother Seton's life and legacy. I really really have to do a show on Our Lady of Guadalupe. It's one of the most stunning apparitions. I think it's because the the image is so ubiquitous, right? At least where I am. I see it everywhere. I mean, I, I get too. I mean, here in 
Atlanta. I mean, we, we have a large Mexican, South American population. Um, honestly, it's one of my favorite things that, you know, they are like Catholicism is so much more a part of their culture and faith and very open about that. Like you can find this image reproduced all over and such get candles of it, blankets of it. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And so I, I like it that it's a very accessible Marian image. I actually found graffiti of this image once inside a home we were looking at buying. It was funny. It was just like, I guess a garage or something. The property was abandoned for a long time. And I'm going around with a flashlight. And then in there I see this image. You know, somebody did graffiti of the... Guadalupe, Our Lady of Guadalupe. Wow. I think you have graffiti, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's some good. I think because it's so ubiquitous, I just didn't look into it. Like, I sort of knew the basics of the story, but I didn't know how amazing it was. And the fact that that tilma still exists, and it should not. The material they made from, it just rots away. It doesn't stay. And that thing has been through explosions and... People have been handling it. I mean, not anymore. They keep it, you know, well protected now. But for many, many years, decades, people were handling it and touching it and everything. There's no way that thing should exist, and yet it does. It's amazing. I find it interesting that St. Elizabeth and Stephen had a copy of it because, I don't know, I just feel like, what does it say, this was 1811? Yeah. You would kind of think that maybe at that time, like, it might be, seen as more oh this is a mexican thing this or something like that then and she's up there in maryland i don't know that just yeah interesting how I mean, like maybe not right away because i think it is a few centuries when mm-hmm. did the apparition happen i want to say that was in the 1600s yeah 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 at least by then it just shows that it's already a devotion that spread yep not yeah. just a, a local thing Back to the article, it says, The origins of the paintings, what we know about Mother Seton's image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, begins on June 5, 1811, two years after she moved to Emmitsburg. On that date, she wrote a letter to her friend and benefactor, Matthias O'Conway, expressing her gratitude for a $200 painting of Our Adored, referring to Our Lady of Guadalupe, that, quote, makes our humble chapel look really like a chapel, unquote. The image was eventually placed prominently over the altar in the sister's chapel, according to a note on the painting's back. Okay, further down in the article, it says it was 1531 that Our Lady of Guadalupe appeared five times to St. Juan Diego, earlier than I thought. I'm honestly not too familiar with this story of Guadalupe. Oh, it's stunning. It's really stunning. We will definitely be doing a show on it. As I said, that tilma should not exist. There's no way. And then I was found recently that the stars on her mantle actually confirmed to certain musical notes and make this really beautiful song when played is is the chances of that happening because people have taken other images of Our Lady of Guadalupe where they didn't really copy the stars exactly as they appear on the original they just you know randomly put stars on and they don't make music it makes chaos it's the original placement of the stars that actually make musical notes that make sense and as far as a song I'm a musician but I know very little about music theory I'm a I'm a folk musician through and through and I've heard the music played. It's it's really, really beautiful. And the chances of that happening are just 
almost none that someone would just randomly play stars that would uh, end up as musical notes like that. They also represent the constellations that were in the sky at that time, I believe. Okay. Yeah, that's something you would probably be very interested in. Yeah. Checking out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I imagine that with with this apparition, we do have the day, the exact day she appeared, right? I believe so, or very close to it. December 1531. But there might be people who can get you closer to the exact date, yeah. I'm guessing the feast day would be around that time. Yeah, probably December 15th. Yeah. I look into that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know at the um, Archdiocese in Atlanta, we got inside the chapel there a relic of Juan Diego. Oh, yeah. I like hunting relics. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and we'll get into all this. There's so much to this apparition. We should probably do a show on this pretty soon. I'll give you time to look into the stars on the cloak and then maybe we'll do it. The tilma itself, they've done scientific analysis of it, and it's not paint on it. They don't know what made the image. They have no clue. It's not paint. So it's one of these questions like the Shroud of Turin or something else. They just they don't know how it was made. Our next story comes from the Catholic Sun, the official news source for the Diocese of Phoenix. The article is, Pope advances sainthood causes, including of a saint's brother. This is from December 19th, 2023. Pope Francis advanced eight sainthood causes December 14th, including the cause of St. Gianna Beretta Mola's brother, Capuchin father Alberto Beretta, who died three years before St. John Paul II canonized his sister. Father Beretta, who died in 2001, was a physician, like both St. Gianna and their only surviving sibling, Canossian sister Virginia Beretta. He was a missionary to Brazil for 20 years until partial paralysis from a stroke led the Capuchins to bring him back to Italy. Pope Francis signed a decree recognizing that Father Beretta lived the Christian virtues in a heroic way. A miracle attributed to his intercession will be needed for his beatification. During a meeting with Cardinal Marcelo Semeraro, prefect for the Dicastery for Saints' Causes, the Pope signed decrees recognizing the miracles needed for two beatifications, Mexican missionary of the Holy Spirit, Father Moises Lira Serafin, who lived 1893 to 1950 and founded the Missionaries of Charity of Mary Immaculate, and Spanish Discalce Carmelite, Sister Ana de Libera Torres, who was born in Spain in 1545, was a close collaborator of St. Teresa of Avila and died in Belgium in 1621. Pope Francis also signed decrees recognizing the martyrdom of five men. A miracle is not needed for their beatifications. One decree concerned the murders of two Xaverian missionary priests, a Xaverian missionary brother, and a diocesan priest in Congo in 1964. Simba rebels who had taken many priests and nuns hostage shot Xaverian brother Vittorio Faison. I'm sorry about my pronunciation. I'm sure I'm butchering this. And Xaverian father Luigi Carrara in the village of Baraka, before driving to the congregation's mission in Fizi and killing Xaverian Father Giovanni Didoni and Father Albert Joubert, a diocesan priest. The fifth martyrdom recognized in the Pope's decrees December 14th was that of Jean Havlik, a Vincentian seminarian in Slovakia in the 1950s and 1960s, when the communists were trying to suppress all religion. Havlik, who first entered the seminary in 1950, 
was arrested twice for being a seminarian and studying theology. Eventually sentenced to 10 years hard labor, he was sent to work in a uranium mine. Later, another year was added to his sentence for evangelizing among the prisoners. Broken from torture, work, and malnutrition, he died in 1965. The Pope also signed separate decrees recognizing that Ernesto... Yeah, yeah, that, that was tough. <laughs> Guglielmo Cufino Ubico and Francesca Lancelotti led lives of heroic Christian virtue. Cufino, a Guatemalan, was a pediatrician director of Caritas Guatemala, a husband and a father of five children and a member of Opus Dei. He lived 1899 to 1991. Lancelotti, who lived 1917 to 2008, was a wife and mother of three children who was lived near Potenza, Italy, and later in Rome. So these are people that are on the way to sainthood. I always like to do these articles because it gives us a preview of people we might be talking about in the future. Yeah. I don't know. I just think it's wonderful. Beatifying and canonizing people. Oh, yeah. And I have to say, I wasn't giggling at the poor fellow who was sentenced to torture. I was laughing at the uh, just the ridiculousness of, you know, he was sent to work in a uranium mine because he was religious. I was laughing at the ridiculousness of that notion, man. Yeah, I mean, yet it, it happened, and it still happens all over the world. Yeah, and I mean, to me, the ridiculous part that I snickered at is that another year to his sentence for evangelizing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, among the prisoners. Yeah, I mean, he lived his faith and unfortunately died his faith, but he's being recognized for it. Yeah, that's what these saints are for, and that's what I find really encouraging and and I just love hearing about these new saints and beatifieds and oh yeah, so it shows that the church is recognizing people from all these different parts of the world and different walks of life. I've gotten the question a few times about how many saints there are, and I think some people just get this idea like there's a dozen of them at most. Right, right. <laughs> when I looked up the number of how many canonized saints, it, it's thousands. Uh, um, I've seen some numbers as high as 30,000. Yeah. When I, I think it's stretching um, how many is canonized, or maybe there are that many canonized, I don't know, but you know, I mean, just 30,000 saints, I mean, the more I look at it, the more that does sound about right. When I started The Flowered Path, someone told me, you're going to run out of saints. And I just said, no, I'm not. Not if I did a show every day. I'll never run out of saints. So I saved this article for last because I think it's really, really cool. This, again, comes from the Catholic News Agency from December 23rd, 2023. Catholic Church reportedly closer to getting its first samurai saint. I mean, just, that's so cool. That headline. The Vatican is currently investigating miracles associated with the intercession of Blessed Justice Ukan Takayama that, if confirmed, could lead to the canonization of the Church's first samurai saint. A renowned Japanese warrior in his day, and a man of great learning and culture, Takayama renounced his power and possessions rather than give up his faith. For his defiance, Takayama was exiled from Japan, fleeing with 300 other Christians to the Philippines. 
where he died in 1615. In 2016, Pope Francis approved a decree designating Takayama's death as a martyrdom, and he was officially beatified in February 2017. To be canonized as the Church's first samurai saint, the Vatican must approve at least one verified miracle attributed to Takayama's intercession. Born in a castle to a noble Japanese Buddhist family in 1552, Takayama was raised to be a warrior and exemplar of the Japanese spirit and culture. The Takayama were daimyo, members of the class of ruling feudal lords who held vast estates and were entitled to raise armies. When he was 11 years old, Takayama's father, Takayama Haida no Kami, challenged a Christian preacher, a personal follower of St. Francis Xavier, to a debate. Though Takayama's father had intended to put an end to the Christian's proselytizing, he ended up being so impressed with the Christian's arguments that he converted to the faith along with his son. Thus, Takayama was baptized as a Catholic at the age of 11, and despite being caught up in wars and political upheaval, he and his father were able to use their influence to support missionary activities in Japan, serving as protectors of Japanese Christians and of the missionaries. According to writings of missionary priests, Takayama spent long hours in prayers and meditation throughout his life, especially in his later days when the Japanese persecutions were worsening. After years of missionary growth, a brutal persecution against the Catholic faith broke out under the rule of Japanese Chancellor Toyotomi Hideyashi. Hideyashi called on all Japanese Catholics to abandon the faith or face consequences. It is said that Hideyashi even crucified Catholic men and women to make an example of them. Wow. Despite years of loyal service to Japan as a warrior general and feudal lord, Takayama was faced with the ultimatum of either renouncing his faith or his feudal power. According to the Filipino organization, the Lord Takayama Jubilee Foundation, Takayama was willing to obey his feudal superiors in all things, except when it came to his faith. He chose to give up his power rather than denounce his God. For this, Takayama was stripped of his rank and authority. He continued to live in poverty in Japan for a few years longer, but the persecution only continued to get worse. In 1614, Takayama and some 300 other Christians were exiled from Japan. Takayama led the group to the Philippines, where they were able to practice the faith freely. Takayama's time in the Philippines was to be short, however, as he died 44 days after arriving on February 4, 1615, reportedly due to the weakness caused by the maltreatments he suffered in his homeland. His final words were to call his grandchildren to stand firm in the Christian faith. I wish they said what the miracle was that was approved, but that is such a cool story. I'm always impressed by the Asian Catholic converts during these more eight times uh, centuries ago. Because you're looking at there, it's a, an alien religion. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just especially in China, like I'm going over the Chinese martyrs right now. And I mean, you're looking at just such a conformist society. I'm trying to think of what the actual term is that people who study culture use. Like, there's just no wiggle room. I had a Japanese friend who explained it to me in a metaphor. She said, the nail that sticks out will be hammered in. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the way she explained Japanese society to me. And that's today. So you can imagine in the 1600s, you know, it was probably quite worse. Yeah. And they were suspicious of influence of outsiders as well. 
they were already very, very suspicious of Westerners in general. So I'm sure when they're, you know, people are converting people to their religion, it's quite a problem for the authorities, let's say. I wish they had a picture of him <laughs> on the article. Yeah. I wonder if there is any. I'm looking at the um, Lord Takiyama Jubilee Foundation website now. And it says here that the miracles haven't been approved yet. Still under investigation. Okay. So I'm wondering if maybe that's why the article didn't say what they were. Maybe they don't have all the information. But... Okay. All right. Okay. So they have one painting of him. It looks like it's quite an awesome image, honestly. He's kneeling in his samurai robes as if he would be holding a sword, but he's actually holding a crucifix. It's a really, really cool image. Sort of the typical kneeling samurai thing, but, you know, instead of a sword, he's holding a crucifix. It's quite amazing, really. Oh, I see that now, yeah. We'll see if we can find out more about him. Maybe we can do a show on him as well, because he's super interesting. Such a cool story. So we may soon have a samurai saint. Yeah, he's a blessed. Yeah. So he's already be venerated already. Yeah, so we can officially say, Blessed Takayama, pray for us. Yes. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. All right, now I'm going to talk to Mary Beth Bracey about St. Therese of Lisieux and these two books from Sophia Institute Press, I Would Like to Travel the World and I Believe in Love. I'd like to welcome Mary Beth Bracey to The Flowered Path. How are you doing today? Great. How are you, Tim? I'm doing well. We're going to talk about two books on the wisdom and legacy of St. Therese of Lisieux. I would like to travel the world by Bishop Guy Gaucher. My French is bad, so you might have to help me here. (laughs) And I Believe in Love by Father Jean-C.J. Delbay. Is that right? Yes. All right. Before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am a consecrated virgin for my diocese in Ogdensburg, New York. I work remotely for Sophia Institute Press as a copywriter and a publicity coordinator. I have been very blessed to be devoted to St. Therese since my confirmation. And since that time, she's really kind of, I believe, helped me both in vocational discernment as well as in writing as well in the Catholic world. So initially writing articles for different newspapers and magazines and so on, but then also writing a few books as well, including one about her. And 
I was also blessed to be present at World Youth Day in 1997 when St. John Paul II declared that St. Therese would be made a doctor of the church in October of that year. So I really feel like she's been very instrumental in my faith life and was very excited to be able to talk about these books as well. And can you tell us a little bit about Sophia Institute Press? I've mentioned it several times on the podcast because you've been wonderful to work with, and you're actually my contact there, my main contact anyway. And people have asked me, you know, what, what is Sophia Institute Press? So maybe you can tell us a little bit about their work. Sure. So Sophia Institute Press, I believe, is the largest Catholic publisher in the United States. And we have a variety of books on Catholic spirituality and apologetics and so on. There's also a few different branches of Sophia. So there's an institute for teachers, and then they also have some different online magazines. So for example, like Catholic Exchange is one of them. Before we get into talking about these books, and I know this isn't going to be easy to sum up in, in one question in one interview, but can you tell us a bit about St. Therese of Lisieux for those who may be unfamiliar with her? Yes. So St. Therese of Lisieux was born on January 2nd, in 1873 in the Normandy region of France, and she lived until 1897. When she died at the age of 24, she had become a Carmelite nun, so she lived the last nine years of her life in a cloistered convent. She is especially known for the Little Way, and additionally, she is also very popular for her autobiography, which her superiors asked her to write, which is Story of the Soul. Additionally, she wrote poems and plays. She left volumes of letters behind as well. She also was a gifted painter. She painted a fresco and other things as well. She also was a gifted seamstress and would do beautiful embroidery, for instance, on priestly vestments and so on. Amazing someone so young to accomplish so much and to be so incredibly modest. If you read her writings, she was just very, very modest about everything. Yes, definitely. I think that she really believes that God in his mercy would even use our weaknesses in order to help for our salvation and the salvations of others when we just surrendered everything to him like a little child. Is she the youngest doctor of the church? Yes, she is the youngest doctor of the church and one of only four women. So the first of the two books we're talking about is I Would Like to Travel the World. Who was Bishop Gaucher, and why did he write this book? So Bishop Guy Gaucher was the auxiliary bishop of Bayou and Lejeu, and he published many books about St. Therese, including the story of her life. Also, one I read several years ago was on the passion of St. Therese of Lejeu, and it was about her final days. Most significantly, he directed the publication of the critical edition of the complete works of St. Therese, so everything that she wrote had to be gone through with a fine-tooth comb and even for her to even be considered a doctor of the church. So he really helped make it possible for that to happen. And as the bishop of her hometown, he was flooded with all of these stories of miracles. And so ultimately he decided to choose the 17 miracles that appear in this book to basically do what St. Therese wanted, which is to praise the mercies of the Lord. So that was really kind of his inspiration behind the book, was his, his deep personal relationship to St. Therese from being in her area and getting to know her quite well through her intercession. What kinds of miracles are in the book? 
there's a variety of miracles basically in every walk of life, whether it's a baby or somebody middle-aged or the elderly. And sometimes it would be a physical healing. Other times it would be a spiritual healing. Maybe someone was suffering from depression or had just completely lost their faith and were turned off from God. Other times it would also be just that they were in a really desperate situation where they wanted St. Therese to intercede for one of their loved ones as well who were going through difficulties. Yeah, I have to say the the miracle section is, I mean, the whole book is very, very interesting, and, and it documents the tour for relics along with these miracles. But the miracle section is, is enchanting, is my favorite part of the book, certainly. I think so also. I, I had a really hard time putting down the first third of the book with the miracles because even though you know it's somebody's testimony and it's truthful, at the same time it almost reads like a novel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So why was the Declaration of St. Therese as a doctor of the Church so revolutionary? So until 1970, all of the doctors of the Church were men. It was revolutionary because when you tend to think of doctors of the Church, you think of people like St. Thomas Aquinas, who were really learned and probably advanced in years and left behind volumes and volumes of writings. However, St. Therese, as you mentioned, is the youngest doctor and one of only four women. A doctor of the Church needs to have the marks of orthodoxy and wisdom, and as a canonized saint, their doctrine also has to be standard and useful for everyone. So her writings were critically examined and went through all these different examinations through the doctrine of faith and so on and so forth. And Pius XI called St. Therese a word of God for the world and said that her little doctrine of confidence and love is universal and accessible to all. So it's really amazing that a 24-year-old would basically be declared a doctor of the Church but even esteemed theologians, I learned, compared her thinking to Thomas Aquinas, for instance, like Garagou Lagrange and Von Balthasar, compared her thinking to St. Thomas Aquinas. So I guess you could say she was St. Thomas Aquinas made simple for the rest of us. Like I said, it's just stunning. Everything that she was able to accomplish in such a short life, very, very inspirational. Definitely. I, I guess it, it kind of is always a reminder and a lesson to me that if I give God permission, he can do amazing things. Amen. So what is meant by St. Therese's Shower of Roses, and how did the Relic Tour extend this shower? So when we talk about the Shower of Roses, it's talking about different types of miracles that are basically obtained through St. Therese's intercession. And the bishop, Bishop Goucher, also referred to the Storm of Glory or the Shower of Roses. This is really evidenced in both the first section of the book as well as in the Relic Tour, because St. Therese actually said that her desire was that she had the vocation of an apostle and that she wanted to preach the gospel simultaneously on all five continents and to the earth's remotest isles. So a lot of people kind of scratch their heads and they say, how could a 24-year-old who lived in a cloistered convent and didn't leave there for the last nine years of her life do something like this? But you can really see through the different testimonies in this book how she had done that, because at the time the book was written, she had already gone to dozens of countries, and millions of people had venerated her relics. Sometimes it would be quite, quote-unquote, by accident, because somebody may have just been walking down the street and seen a crowd and started to follow it and suddenly realized that they were in the presence of St. Therese's relics, 
and maybe they offered some sort of prayer or a request that they were looking for, and they experienced St. Therese's intercession. And it was really quite striking to me also how it wasn't simply that people prayed before her relics and it was like a one-and-done deal. Once St. Therese starts to intercede for you, she really works in your life in marvelous ways. So sometimes people would be going to confessions in the middle of the street, or there would be all-night Eucharistic adoration vigils or rosaries, or people would be singing St. Therese's poetry in the middle of the street. So at first people kind of said, is anyone really going to come out? Does anyone even know what a relic is anymore? (laughs) So the response was really overwhelming when they would have tons of people come out, and sometimes it was even people who weren't Catholic, and somebody would hand them a prayer card of St. Therese, and their hearts would be touched, and suddenly they would be open to having discussions about the faith. Another thing I found really striking is how her relics not only visited churches, but also they would bring her relics to hospitals and retirement homes, to monasteries, seminaries, prisons. Yeah, Yeah, even Dachau concentration camp. Crowds gathered wherever the relics stopped. I think the book counted several dozen million people had visited the relics by the time the tour was over. Why do you think St. Therese is so popular today? I think St. Therese is so popular because she's somebody that when you really start to get to know, you can relate to because she's kind of like, a lot of people described her like this in the book as well, as a sister. So I think that she kind of becomes part of your family Initially, some people might honestly think, oh, if I pick up Story of a Soul, you know, maybe she's too sentimental for me. I don't know. It's a little bit too saccharine. But one of my priest friends, for instance, picked up another book by her called Maurice and Therese, and that's letters she wrote to missionaries and priests and so on. And you can really see in there how she gets to the heart of things, and she really touches on suffering and different ways that we can take courage when we're going through different trials. And so I think in that, St. Therese is a great example of confidence and also the total surrender we're called to have, but she makes it seem approachable. She makes it seem like something we can obtain. So I think that she becomes a really good friend for us and a really powerful intercessor for us. She eventually died from tuberculosis, right? Yes. The stories of her just meeting that so beautifully and peacefully, I mean, we could all learn from that. The way she dealt with suffering is absolutely inspiring and just a lesson for all of us. I think so, and I think the older I get, the more I appreciate how much she suffered, because I think that's sometimes one of the criticisms people might initially have of St. Therese. They might say, oh, she came from a really holy family, like her parents are, are literally saints, and Also, she came from a well-to-do family, so what does she know about suffering? But then when you read more about her, you realize that her mother died of breast cancer when she was only four, and that her older sisters left for the Carmel, which was wonderful that they also became sisters, but she kind of lost her surrogate mothers, as it were, at a young age. And then shortly after St. Therese herself entered the Carmel, her father developed dementia. So I think a lot of the suffering she went through in addition to the physical sufferings of tuberculosis are things that we unfortunately might encounter at some point during our lives. So she can also be our friend in those situations too and show us how we can experience consolation and peace even in those very difficult trials. Important lessons we're all going to face in one way or another. 
Yes. In what way does I Would Like to Travel the World show how we can live out St. Teresa's spirituality in our daily lives? So I think that it's very helpful, as St. John Paul II said, he said he was making her a doctor of the Church because she is an expert in the science of love. So even when she interceded for people, whether it was a little child who had terrible scalding or whatever it was, she would come very quietly, she would intercede for that person gently, but then she didn't really draw attention to herself, so to speak. She would just do what she was called to do and kind of give us that example, that witness, whether it's just those little things, and being, I think, also just open to what God is doing. So one of my favorite stories in the book was of a woman whose husband was basically dying, and the doctor said at this point he doesn't have hours, he has minutes. So she had to very quickly run to the store and get some food for her children. And when she came out of the grocery store, she looked down on the ground, and she happened to see something little, and it it caught her eye, so she picked it up, and it happened to be a relic of St. Therese. And she didn't know if she should take it or not, but she took it. She went back to the hospital, and she's like, you know, I don't really know what to do with this. But her husband was dying, so she she touched the relic of St. Therese to his forehead. And her husband had been in a coma, and very shortly after was supposed to die. But when she touched the relic to his head, then her husband suddenly awakened. And over the next few months, he became more healthy and more active than he was before his illness. So I think those little things of just being open to what God is doing and seemingly ordinary events, then by opening our hearts in imitation of St. Therese, that we're able to experience the power of his love. The second book is called I Believe in Love. What insights into her life and spirituality does this book provide? Oh, there's so many. I think that it's really been called a personal retreat, and I think it really speaks to the heart of what it means for us to journey in love of God. And just flipping through the table of contents, some of the sections talk about things like the confidence, again, that St. Therese is so famous for that we need to have in God, and that abandonment and that unshakable faith in Him. Also, how we can live out the apostolate regardless of our vocation and how we can show charity in our dealings with others. One of my favorite chapters also during this time of the Eucharistic revival has to do with St. Therese's Eucharistic devotion and how we can be more fervent in receiving Holy Communion and adoring our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. It also talks about how we can obtain the intercession of Our Lady and the saints as well. So many different themes. I think also really powerfully something that, again, everyone can relate to is how we can carry our crosses and why God even allows sufferings in the first place. So in all of that also, it describes how we can, in a very personal relationship type way, grow in virtue. You describe the book, and the book describes itself, I believe, as a personal retreat. What does that mean? So initially, Père Jean de Cordier, Jesus de Elbe, had written these, I believe, as a series of retreat conferences. And so I think it's something that you can literally pick up, and you might go through the book very slowly. Some people might read one page at a time and get a lot out of it. Some people might read a whole chapter, kind of like a retreat conference at a time, and mull it over. I've had some people say they simply can't put the book down. 
so they'll kind of read through the whole thing with almost within a night. I've had some people who said that for the reasons I mentioned before, they just didn't really buy into St. Therese because they thought, you know, what does she know about life or suffering? <laughs> but as soon as they read this book, they now give it away to everyone else because they just think that she is such a powerful saint and it really gets into the heart of her spirituality. So I think that regardless of your situation or how much time you have on your hands, it will really speak to your heart in a powerful way. Was the text based on talks from actual retreats? Yes, I believe that the author, who was the Superior General of the Congregation of the Sacred Hearts of Jesus, Mary, and of Adoration, gave these talks probably to his congregation, and they were written down, thankfully, because it's really become a modern-day spiritual classic. They do read like something that was presented to people live, you know, which, which is a good thing. I think as a reader, it gets across that idea of the personal retreat. Definitely. I think it makes it much more engaging and almost conversational. So I'm not going to attempt to pronounce his name again, because like, like I said, my French is awful. But who was the author and what was his connection to St. Therese? Sure. So Pere Dielby, I think by virtue of the fact that he was from France, and he was born toward the end of her life, actually. But I'm sure that as a religious, he was exposed to her spirituality. You can see how he really made it his own. And he also, I think it's interesting, applies her spirituality to other devotions that we have, whether it's devotions to the Sacred Heart or so on. And so he makes it something that is really approachable to us and also applies it to the sacred scriptures and basically to every facet of our lives, all of the important ways that we would want to grow spiritually, he touches upon, I think, in this book. Yeah, he kind of shows how St. Therese fits in with the rest of Catholic teaching. He doesn't just take, you know, this is what St. Therese said. It would be, this is what she said. Here's how it weaves into scripture, and here's how it weaves into maybe something some other saint said. He kind of expands her teaching in that sense. Yes, definitely. I think so. The book contains a section on how to deal with failure. So can you elaborate on that a bit? So actually, she talks about that fairly often, and she writes letters of encouragement to people who are going through difficult times, whether sometimes we're just kind of scrupulous and blaming ourselves for things too much or being too hard on ourselves, or other times when we've had those kind of epic falls. So St. Therese gives a variety of different advice. So, for instance, she says, I am not always faithful, but I never get discouraged. I abandon myself into the arms of Jesus, and there I find again all that I have lost and much more besides. I also really like how he quotes her letters to other people. And some, so, for instance, here she says, Although the memory of my faults humiliates me, it leads me to never rely on my own strength, which is nothing but weakness but even more this memory speaks to me of mercy and love. So she kind of talks about how obviously we don't fall on purpose, but when we do fall, if we throw ourselves into God's arms with complete confidence, then he'll kind of raise us up even more so, even closer to his heart than we had been after we fell. So I think it's really powerful how she talks about how we can benefit even from our failures in light of God's mercy. Yes. Again, it's something we're all going to face one way or another. We're going to fall, we're going to fail, and we're going to have to deal with that. Yes, for sure. And she even writes a letter here, for instance, to her sister, Celine, who later entered the Carmel. 
And again, she says, you know, what does it matter, my Jesus, if I fall every moment? It shows you what I am capable of, and then you will be more tempted to carry me in your arms. So I think it's it's also interesting how the author, Paradielby, also brings in his own explanations of her spirituality, too, to make it even more tangible to us. So he says, if you make each sin an occasion for you to kiss the wound of Jesus' heart with repentance and confidence, each sin will become a rung in the ladder by which you ascend in love. From misery to misery, we go from mercy to mercy. So St. Therese faced many trials, as we spoke before, and I think for especially people outside of Catholicism looking in, there's a lot of question about like suffering and why does God let this happen? Why does God let us face these trials? I think that St. Therese and the author of this book also really fleshes it out for us, that there are many different reasons we might experience suffering. Ultimately, everything in our lives, even when it doesn't seem like it, even when it seems like everything is confusing and dark and hopeless, everything in our lives is bringing us to greater union with God if we entrust ourselves to Him. So part of suffering is to help us to trust on God more and to rely on Him more. Additionally, when we suffer, I think it makes us a lot more compassionate toward others, so it really helps us to learn more empathy for others as well. It gives us an opportunity to make reparation for our own sins and also to atone for the sins of others. So like St. Paul said, we help make up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, as it were. And also it helps us to prepare for our everlasting glory, please God in heaven. So all of these different things the author really fleshes out in this book and I think that it's really striking. Again, we, we see the the witness of St. Therese, and we see how she was willing to entrust herself totally to God in all of the different trials that she faced. And even when people treated her poorly, like sometimes, unfortunately, in the convent, I guess just like in any other situation we might find ourselves in in life, there are people who are not always kind to others, So some of the sisters knew, for instance, that she wouldn't complain. So when it came to dinner time, if they had leftovers that were kind of disgusting, they would give them to her. Like they would, if they were having fish, they would give her the fish heads, and they knew that she wouldn't complain. Or another time, not too long before she died, she could hear some of the sisters talking in the window near her in the infirmary and saying something to the effect of, What are we going to put in her obituary? She didn't do anything remarkable in her life. So St. Therese kind of had to sometimes deal with the same things we might need to in our day-to-day life when people aren't always considerate or are uncharitable. And she surrendered those things to God, and she used them as opportunities to atone for any sins that she may have committed, but also for others as well, to work for the salvation of souls, which she thought was her greatest desire. Very, very simple lessons, but difficult to enact, and something that is greatly missing in the modern world. I think we get entranced with this idea that we should always be comfortable. Everything should always be perfect for us, you know? And again, it's not going to be. Uh, We're going to suffer in life. We're going to have these problems. And these teachings are there to help us deal with it. 
you know, not everything's going to be solved by uh, turning on the TV or, you know, whatever uh, modern, you know, solution may be. It's just not there. So I think it's very important that these teachings exist. And I think the modern world could really use some turning back to this kind of thought. Definitely. I agree. So I think that, as you mentioned, none of us is going to get out of life without suffering. So I guess, like Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen said, that the saddest, the most tragic thing is wasted suffering. So we really learn from St. Therese, and especially in this book, how we can unite our sufferings to the sufferings of Christ so that it isn't wasteful, so it, it helps us not only to attain heaven, but also those around us as well. And it can also be, as in the situation of St. Therese, that your suffering could be helping someone else on the other side of the world that you've never met before. And we see a lot of beautiful stories of that in the lives of the saints, too, where they offered up their sufferings for others, and it really just helped to convert a hardened sinner, or it helped somebody who is already growing in holiness to become a great saint and do amazing things for God and His kingdom. So we can be missionaries like St. Therese, even if it is from the basement of our home, when we offer up those little things or those sacrifices and prayers to God for his glory and the salvation of souls. I know we were talking about the two books here today, but do you want to mention some of your other books, Mary Beth? Certainly. So I've written a few other books. Most of them are centered on the Holy Eucharist and the saints. The first book I wrote was called Behold the Lamb. And I wrote that actually in the year 2000. And that particular book I did, in fact, dedicate to St. Therese. And I think that one way God has always spoken to my heart is through music. So in that particular book, I took modern-day song, song lyrics, whether it was from the 1960s or something closer to our time. And I basically said, how is our Lord speaking to me through this? And so I interspersed it with scripture and with reflections on the Holy Eucharist and God's great love for us. And then in the second book I wrote, which is called Bread of Life, it's a collection of Eucharistic quotes for every day of the year. And for each month, there's also a different reflection, primarily centered on the Holy Eucharist. But for instance, it depends on the month as to the devotion. So whatever the month is dedicated for. So in May, it might have to do with the Holy Eucharist and Our Lady, for example. The next book I wrote was Stories of the Eucharist, which I co-wrote. And that book goes through the lives of several different saints. And it's something that even like a first communicant could read. And you could also use as a coloring book. But also it's something that teachers and parents really enjoy as well because they're able to learn about the saints and their devotion to the Blessed Sacrament, too. My most recent book was actually about St. Therese's spirituality, so The Little Way to Healing Love, The Stations of the Cross through St. Therese of Lisieux. And I think that writing can be very cathartic, and so I was just thinking about different losses and things I had gone through, I believe, when I started writing the book. And I looked at St. Therese's life and her writings and thought about the different ways that she was suffering and kind of how I could align them, as it were, with the Stations of the Cross. So the book, in addition to kind of having like a heartfelt prayer in the beginning, kind of like, you know, God, I want to grow closer to you, but I don't know about this suffering business. And then 
there's kind of like a response that our Lord gives us from the scriptures, and then an example from the the life of St. Therese, and then ultimately a quote or a poem or something from her at the end as well. You also keep a blog called The Little Way. Yes, that is correct. So, again, inspired by St. Therese, I started a blog where you can see examples of my writing, because I do write very often for various Catholic publications, too. So you can see some samples on there or links to things I'm working on, too. And where can people pick up I Would Like to Travel the World and I Believe in Love, the two books we were talking about today? They can obtain it through sophiainstitute.com or any place where Catholic books are sold. I'll make sure to put links in the show note for that and as well as to your blog. I want to thank you for taking time to talk with me today, Mary Beth. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Tim. So Sophia Institute Press gave me permission to read one of these miracle accounts from I Would Like to Travel the World. As I mentioned when I talked to Mary Beth, my favorite part of the book are these miracle accounts. The first part of the book is just people who have written in with these miracles they're attributing to St. Therese. One of them she mentioned was actually the one I wanted to read. It was a guy who had Alzheimer's and he was in the last part of his life. And his wife found a relic and placed it on him, and he had a complete recovery. I mean, they were feeding him through a tube and everything. He had a complete recovery. It's a stunning story. But she already mentioned that, so I figured I'd choose a different one. This is from a chapter called In a Complete Coma. On March 3rd, 1972, firefighters took me to the hospital of Drew after I fell off a horse. I had lost consciousness, and my scalp was bleeding profusely. Two days later, I was still unconscious. My condition had worsened, and an ambulance drove me urgently to the ophthalmological unit at the Hotel Dieu in Paris. I had a large exothalmus. My right eye was swollen for no apparent reason, but the eye problem was incidental. I had hardly arrived when the ambulance left again for another hospital. This was to remove an extradural temporobasal blood clot on my right side. I was in a coma, and I wasn't aware of any of this. There was a lesser aggravation. The appearance of a hemiplegia on the right side required another surgery on March 15th. The exothalamus was still very large and had required that my eye be sewn shut. I gradually recovered after this surgery. There were more and more substantial moments of clarity. My right eye made me suffer a lot. One night, around March 20th or the 21st, I saw a lovely young woman, radiant and smiling, coming near my bed. I should say a young girl, but I was 23 years old at the time, and she seemed older than I. She wore a white dress and carried something in an apron that was raised toward her waist. She came close to the right side of my bed and leaned toward me. She showed me two or three rose petals from a rose that was very pale, almost white, that she took from her apron, and then put them on my eye. She didn't leave any trace of them, but from then on I felt very blessed, and I'm no longer hurting at all. She spoke to me in a gentle voice, but it was a normal voice. It didn't seem to me that she was whispering. I am Therese of Lisieux. There, I must leave already. You know I'm very much in demand right now. I have a lot to do. That was, in essence, what she told me. I felt quite peaceful after she left. She had come from the right side of my bed, and she left again, not by vanishing, but by walking away calmly and confidently. When the nurse came to clean my eye the next morning, I said to her, I'm no longer hurting because 
Without ending my sentence, a second time I added, Someone came to heal me last night. She nodded her head. Maybe she thought I was hallucinating. Since I was doing better, a nurse brought me a pile of letters that I had received. The first letter opened was from my older sister, Astrid. The first line of her letter said, I prayed to St. Therese a lot. I understood that if she had mentioned another saint, I'd have seen that saint. Since then, I've deeply believed in prayer. Although I had received a religious education, I had moved away from God. I wasn't aggressive or rebellious, far from that, but I was an advertising copywriter. I no longer had time to go to church. I had a lot of friends and was intoxicated by this exciting and alluring fake world of advertising. I had several revelations after my accident. This was the very real benefit of prayer. Another was that St. Therese truly is spending her heaven doing good on earth, according to her own words. There was the revelation that God doesn't abandon his own. The accident came precisely at the right moment, when I was turning away from him. I've been very lucky since then. Of course, I've continued to be handicapped. I've balanced problems. Without support, I can't go down a stairway or even a sidewalk if it's too high. But I'm an active mother. I was very happy to marry a former classmate who teaches the classics. We are delighted to have two adorable daughters. I got a bachelor's degree in modern languages in 1982 and a master's degree in 1983 with distinction at the Sorbonne. I'm a diligent parishioner. I very happily attend Sunday Mass and devote a lot of time to prayer. I thank the Lord and his faithful St. Therese for all of this. I even go so far as to thank them for the very positive shock of my accident. That was written by Nadine C. from Paris, May 17th, 1994. that's it for this episode thanks everybody for listening justin thanks for hopping on and we'll be hearing more from you as well i'm happy to have somebody to do this with me and in fact next episode is going to be on saint perpetua from research you did and a reading you did as well so we can look forward to that and if you like what you hear please subscribe and follow wherever you're listening if you feel inclined to leave a nice review that would help as well if you would subscribe to the flower path youtube channel even if you don't listen there that would help. We're trying to build up our subscribers there. I want to mention the Etsy shop. Our shop name is Lost Grave. There's a Flower Path section there at Etsy. There's always links in the show notes to this. We should have Flower Path t-shirts back in stock soon. They were supposed to be finally redone at the end of 2023, so they should be in my hands soon. Also, Paracord Rosaries, I have a lot of them there. The Merry Bandanas, I only have a few left, so pick them up. I'll probably do another design when they sell out. And Petals and Thorns, the little Catholic ephemerazine. The 10-inch lathe cut record by the Forest Beggars is there. Kind of Catholic devotional folk music and more. So go ahead and check that out at our Etsy shop. Again, the shop name is Lost Grave, and there's a section for the Flowered Path. that has all that stuff in it. We'll be back soon with more Flowered Path.
blade it came down, from his feet it came down, and ran to the ground. Between heaven and hell, a teardrop fell in the deep crimson dew. The tree of life grew, and the blood gave light to the branches of the tree, and the blood was the price that set the captives free. And the numbers that came through the fire and the flood clung to the tree and were redeemed by the blood. From the tree streamed a light that started the fight. Round the tree grew a vine. On his fruit. I could die. My old friend Lucifer came, fought to keep me in chains, but I saw through the tricks of six sixty six. And the blood gave life to the branches of the tree. And the blood was the price that set the captives free, and the numbers that came through the fire and the flood clung to the tree and were redeemed by the blood. From his hands it came down, from his side it. Came down from his feet. It came down and ran to the ground. And a small inner voice said, "You do have a choice." The vine engrafted me, and I clung to the tree. And the blood gave life. To the branches of the tree, and the blood was the price that set the captives free, and the numbers that came through the fire and the flood clung to the tree and were redeemed by the blood. From his hands it. From his side it came down, from his feet it came down, and ran to the ground. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.